Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. Jim, what's going on? Well, we've got a great show lined up today. It's going to be a little technical. We're going to be talking about the fundamentals of investing and uh, really helping people get some clarity on how do you construct an investment portfolio and why. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm ready okay. to get started whenever you are. Uh, well, I'm ready to learn from you. I mean, this is your arena, my man, and I'm excited to be a part of this because Every time I get together, a lot of time you have great guests on the show um, and just hearing you guys go back and forth is always fantastic. But when you do these deep dives into a topic, I learn a ton. And so I'm really excited to get started. So this is kind of the design of portfolios, right? That's right. I mean, it's an important topic. And uh, I just want to say this at the outset here is that I'm lucky in my practice where I don't just work with clients, I actually get to do a lot of training and mentoring of other advisors throughout the country. And what I'm gonna walk through today is something that I do use with my clients. So those who are current clients are listening to the show, this is gonna sound familiar, be a great refresher. But on training advisors, it's amazing to see how many people are taking notes like feverishly mm-hmm. as they go through this. So when we get started here, some of this stuff is gonna sound very intuitive and you're gonna probably be thinking, hey, I've heard this before, but as we keep going deeper, you'll probably be like a lot of the advisors that I train and like you you pick up the pen, you start writing stuff down because there's a lot at stake when it comes to our investments. And this is not just money we're investing just because it's interesting. It's these dollars are important. These are dollars we're going to use someday to retire or maybe educate our kids with or start a business with. So we don't want to make any, any mistakes that could have easily been avoided. Yeah, absolutely. What I thought we would do to start to make sense of this is to talk about something that is familiar to us. And I want to start by talking about pizza, if that's okay with with you, Eric. Okay. So here's the thing is that you and I did not talk about this before we got together. My favorite job from when I was younger, when I was a kid, I was a pizza cook for like a year and a half. And that was perfect. Oh, it was fantastic. I didn't know that. So this could be perfect for our show today. All right. All right. So as a pizza connoisseur yourself here, as a a former pro, uh, (laughs) do you have a favorite pizza? Taco. Taco, Taco pizza. pizza. Do, you have, yes. do you have a favorite like pizza place that you like to go to? Well, so here's the thing is that the, the place that I worked at has gone out of business. They had about 13 restaurants uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I think they're defunct now, but they did taco pizza better than any place I've ever seen. And, and my wife gets so annoyed because when we go to a pizza place, I will talk to the owner and say, hey, have you ever thought about doing a taco pizza this way? Because it's a bean sauce, not a red sauce. I won't go any further because this is not my podcast about pizzas. <laughs> However... That's the best taco pizza I've ever had. And uh, yeah, there's a method to it. Absolutely. Interesting. So that that's perfect, right? What we're going to talk about here. Uh, you know, I think about like my favorite pizza, it, it's dependable. Like it is not only awesome pizza, but anytime I go to this place, mm-hmm. I, I know exactly what I'm going to get. It, it tastes the same every single time. Right on. And, you know, sometimes you, you, you think, how do they do this? Because I try to make pizza at home and it's it just, it's nowhere <laughs> near as good, nowhere near as consistent. It doesn't matter what I do. I just can't seem to get it right. But when you think about like a, your favorite go-to pizza and the, the establishment that, that makes it, it's like, well, how do they pull this off that's that consistent every time? And it really comes down to three things. And Eric, jump in if I'm wrong here. But I think about the ingredients. 
like like what are they making the pizza with? They're mm-hmm. probably using high quality ingredients. They're using the they're sourcing from the same place, and it's consistent. They don't randomly skip things. They don't decide one day, hey, we're just not going to add flour to the dough today. That wouldn't yeah. work out very well. So it, it's they have all the ingredients. They're consistent, high quality ingredients. But then there's a recipe that they follow. Right, they're mixing things together in the proper order. They're using the right equipment. And they know what's going to come out of the oven is rather predictable. There's no mm-hmm. surprises of what's going to come out. Uh, but then they have to customize it, right? It's Each customer has their own preferences. So you want to order your pizza your way. You want the toppings that you like on the pizza, not what somebody else likes. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're going to pick on pepperoni here for a minute. I love pepperoni my pizza. But there's some people that they just don't like it. There's some people that for religious le- reasons, they can't have it. There's people mm-hmm. for dietary reasons, can't eat it. It may be, believe it or not, social reasons. They don't want to eat it. And that's fine. So we want to make sure that you know, when we order food, that it's food that makes us happy. It's food that we like, and it's going to fit our diet. So I want to follow that same logic as we look at how to design a portfolio. It's really that simple. You know, we want to have the right ingredients that go into our portfolio. We want to know what recipe we're using. And then we have to just customize the experience and make sure that our preferences uh, that are important to us are factored into that portfolio. And if you follow this, you're going to have a much more competent approach to investing. You're going to understand what's going on, especially like right now when we're recording this episode. I mean, it's been a really volatile year in the stock market, especially and the bond market. And, you know, a lot of people are worried right now they're confused or scared what's going to happen next but you, you really if this is done properly you should know what to expect what the range of outcomes could be in any given year so a lot to cover important episode here today yeah and i i love the parallels that you're drawing here because pepperoni first of all i don't like pepperoni because it gives me heartburn I avoid it, right? So, I mean, it's exactly what you're talking about. Uh, different strokes for different folks, as they say, so on and so forth. Um, l- let me ask you, I'm going to keep on the pizza theme here. Crust is important. And I, I assume that if we continue with this analogy, that's the foundation, right? Mm-hmm. So what is the foundation of what you're building? How does that play into it? Right. So it's kind of funny you mentioned heartburn because some people look at their portfolio and they get right? heartburn, right? <laughs> So yeah, I mean, the foundation, let's talk about ingredients first. And okay. if anyone's out there listening and they're taking notes, I mean, the first thing you want to write down is something called the four-factor model. Uh, this is not something that I made up. This is something that actually comes from a professor from the University of Chicago. His name is Eugene Fama. He's a Nobel laureate, won a Nobel Prize in 2013. But the main crust of the pizza, right, when you look at your portfolio, the main factor, the biggest decision you have to make first is the market factor. So that's mm-hmm. factor number one. You know, do I put money into the stock market or do I put money into the bond market? That's the fundamental decision that investors have to make. So I want to start real high level on this and just talk a little bit about what is a stock and what is a bond. Because, you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with these things. So I want you to just think about the proverbial startup business that's in somebody's garage. Those companies are usually started with, you know, the business owner's own money. And eventually they need to grow that company and they need more money. And now they go you know, hit up mom and dad and try and get their money or you know, other friends and family. Eventually that's not practical. Mm-hmm. So they may go to the bank and get a loan. But the company keeps growing and gets to a certain size. It's no longer practical to go borrow money from the bank. You have to access the capital markets. And that's really what stocks and bonds are. It's a way for businesses to access very large amounts of capital that they can use to put into their business. 
They might be hiring people with this money. They might be investing in new technology or maybe expanding their production line, whatever it is. So they have two primary ways to do this. They can take on more owners of, the, of their business. So they sell stock to the public. The company gets cash. They put that cash to work. But now they have all these new partners, these new business owners that are with them. The other option is they could borrow money from the public. And that's what a bond is. You're, you're making a loan to a corporation or to a government entity. They are going to pay you a certain rate of interest for a certain amount of time. And when the time is up, you get your money back. So these risks are different. We all know that businesses can fail. We hear about it all the time. Mm -hmm. And if you own stock in that business, then you pretty much lost all your money, right? Some companies can't pay their debts back, right? So there's risks here. They are real. And because the risks are a little bit different, your return expectations have to be a little bit different. So let's, let's pick on that company that you used to work for that went out of business. If that was a publicly traded company and that company failed, just imagine that the, the main office of that business, imagine a line forming of all the people that that company owed money to. Mm. Stockholders go to the back of the line. Okay, Bondholders are going to go closer to the front of the line. So if you take a, a really large company that failed, I mean, think of a big technology company, like one of the famous brands. If they failed, you know, they still have things they could sell and get some money back. Maybe they can sell patents. Maybe they can sell some intellectual property or some, some real estate that they have. So they're going to get some money back, but that's going to go to bondholders long before a stockholder ever gets the money. Interesting. So the reason why I'm talking about this is people hear this phrase, risk reward. They hear some people sit misquote it and say risk and return or, or risk and reward are equal. They're really not. It's just they're, they're related. So when you go to invest your money and we look at, you know, how money grows over time, we want to make sure that we're compensated for the risk that we're taking. So I'm going to, I'm going to cite some numbers here and we're going to use a really long time period. And this time period, sometimes people say, well, wait a minute, that's longer than my investing horizon. So I'm going to go back to the 1970s, but I do want to point out before I, I mention these numbers here that investing is not from the time you start investing, maybe after college, you get your first job until you retire, like at age 65. That's not your investing time frame. Like if you retire at 65, you don't just hit a brick wall and suddenly cash in everything that you have and sit on cash. Investing, your real time horizon is from the day you started investing until the day you die. Now, you may change how you feel about risk over that time frame. It's natural to get more conservative as you get closer to retirement, but you don't suddenly go to cash just because you retired. So I'm going to give you some numbers here. We're going to start back in 1973. And we're going to go up until the most recent data set that we have for a complete year, which is the end of 2021. If you invested a hundred dollars, I'm sorry, if you invested $10,000 into treasury bills. So a treasury bill is considered one of the safest investments in the world, because as long as our government can print currency, you know, you can lend them money. Treasury bills, a 30 day loan to the government. When the 30 days are up, they pay the money back. So there's not a lot of risk here, but a lot of people are surprised to hear the returns of that money, that investment over time, that a $10,000 investment back in the early 1970s would be worth about $84,000 by the end of 2021. So that's a growth of money of almost eight times what you put in. So for folks who are thinking, okay, what kind of a return is that? It's a little over four, about a 4.4% return. Not bad for something that's pretty low risk. If you had taken the same $10,000 and you invested it into the S&P 500, which is the 500 largest stocks in the US. Over that same time period, that $10,000 would have grown to 1.6 million. So 
it's a long way from home from that you know $84,000 growth on the treasury bills. So we call that a return premium, right? So historically, the stock market as a whole has returned roughly 7% more than the rate of return on treasury bills over long time periods. Now, that's not going to be the case in the short time period. We've seen mm -hmm. years where it's the opposite, okay? So I want people to know that just because that's a bigger number, 1.6 million is a lot more than 84,000, that does not mean you go throw all of your money into the stock market, okay? And the reason for that is there's risk there. There are very painful points in time with the stock market. I mean, I remember back in, in 2008, I mean, stock market had a complete meltdown and oh, yeah. people's portfolios are down, you know, 35, 40, 45%. I mean, it was scary times. But if you look at it over a longer time period, you know, the returns can be substantial. So all I'm saying here is that if you're going to be alive for a while, if you're going to have money invested, that first factor of having some money in the stock market is just saying that you can have some additional profits by putting money in the stock market, but it's perfectly okay to put money into things like bonds and treasuries to lower the risk. Right, because you have to be comfortable. You have to be able to sleep at night knowing that you know you're gonna be able to withstand any volatility that you see in the stock market. So that's factor number one. Most people that I work with have heard some version of that at some point in their life. Uh, and that's great. When we get to factors two, three, and four, this is usually where people start scribbling some notes. So let's go a little bit deeper here. Let's focus on stocks for a little bit. And let's now look at the second factor, which is what size companies do you buy? So when we talk about small businesses, small stocks, we're not talking about the mom and pop shops. We're talking about still very large companies, but we're taking the entire stock market and we're just going to split it into two. We're going to put the largest half in the one bucket. We're going to put the smallest half in the other bucket. So companies that are smaller, but they're still publicly traded. There's more risk here. So just like stocks had more risks uh, than bonds had, small companies have different risks than larger companies. But if you can hang on to them long enough, you can see a profit for that kind of a risk. So again, we'll stick with that same $10,000 investment back in the 70s and, and look at it with small companies instead of large. So remember, the large companies grew to about $1.6 Small companies would have grown to $4.6 million. Ooh. So now we're talking, right? So there's $3 million of additional growth in that $10,000 investment. Now, again, I'm not, we're not taking out taxes and investing costs, things like that. But we're just demonstrating here, that's a pretty sizable additional return. So what I was saying a moment ago is that the treasury bills versus the stock market is about a 7% average additional return on stocks versus treasury bills. Small companies tend to average about a 2 to 3% additional return over long time periods versus large companies. Not going to happen every year, but again, it's just saying that just because the number is bigger, we don't throw all our money to small companies. It just suggests that you should have some balance here. You should have some exposure to companies of all different sizes. Okay. Yeah. So wow. not really difficult stuff here, but when I look at people's statements, a lot of times we see, wow, there's no small companies at all. So we want to make sure that we're building a portfolio with all those ingredients that we were talking about earlier. So let's hit factors three and four here relatively quickly here. The third factor is what's the relative price of the stock when you buy it? So let's just talk about information for a minute. So uh, Eric, I'm sure you have a smartphone. Is that a safe assumption? I do, sir. <laughs> yeah. And do you ever get news alerts on that phone? I do. Yeah, unfortunately. I yeah. should probably it's turn like, off. Every time you look at the phone, there's a new, you know, new alert coming in. I mean, information mm -hmm. travels at incredible speed. And technology has advanced to the point where 
you can sell a stock on a major exchange in like a nanosecond. And it's crazy the trading volumes that exist around the world, not just in the US. And on any given day, there's about a trillion dollars worth of value exchanging hands just in the stock market alone. And the reason why I'm saying this is because when you look at the price of a stock, a lot of people go, how do they figure out that price? And why is that price moving? So the stock market is really a mechanism, not just for people to exchange value, exchange money for shares. It's a pricing mechanism. So the price of a stock at any given moment is a reflection of information. So it's everything that people know about the company is priced in right now. Uh, things that you could predict about the company, uh, people's fears, doubts. I mean, everybody's trying to do the best they can with what they know and trying to make a decision in their own best interest. So the only thing that's going to move the price of a stock significantly is new information that becomes available that you could not know or predict ahead of time. So let me give the audience an example here. Let's pick on insurance company stocks for a minute. It is known that hurricanes exist, mm -hmm. right? In fact, we're, you know, we look at hurricane season. It's like, okay, well, when's it going to hit? Right. So we know hurricanes happen. We know they hit the U.S. And we know that certain insurance companies, they insure homes all up and down the U.S. along the, the eastern coast. So we know this is going to happen. A lot of that risk is already priced into the stock right now. What we don't know is when's that next big hurricane going to hit and how, damage, how big is the damage going to be? So I don't remember the name of the storm. This was maybe four or five years ago. There was a storm that was brewing out in the Atlantic Ocean. And I remember looking at the news and seeing this little, those like little screens they put at the bottom. It's like, you see like the little swirl of the, of the hurricane mm -hmm. forming. And this thing is like way out in the middle of the ocean. They're going, oh, it's going to be a direct hit to Florida. And I'm thinking like, how do they know this stuff? It's crazy. But every day you'd watch the news and you would see this storm tracking the predictive models, like almost dead on. And they were saying that it is going to be the worst storm that ever hits the U.S. The damage is going to be in the billions and billions of dollars. Lives are going to be lost. So as that storm got closer, what do you think happened to the price of a lot of these insurance companies' stocks as it got closer to Florida? What, what would you say, Eric? Uh, well, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, if you're looking at them having to pay out, I would assume the stock would go down because that's right. The insurance company exactly going to have to pay out. Yeah, right. Big losses, right? That storm, you might be thinking, like, I don't remember the storm, right? That storm did something at the last moment that nobody predicted. It made a turn out in the Atlantic. It turned into a tropical storm. It barely touched Florida, hardly any damage, and it disintegrated. And that yeah. was new information that nobody expected. So if you go back and you can search this stuff on the internet, you'd find that a lot of these insurance company stocks, you look at the, uh, the trading and the prices right before that, that came out. Uh, it was incredible recoveries of those insurance company stocks, like almost immediate. So where am I going with all this? So when you look at the stock market and we look at the pricing of companies, we're going to look at two buckets here. If we take roughly the bottom 30% of the stock market, where you have the stock price that's fallen really low relative to that company's book value, which is a fancy word for saying, you know, what's the company's net worth? So the stock price goes really low relative to the net worth. That's the company that's currently going through some tough times. It's a low price beat up stock. So if we throw all the companies that fit that characteristic into one bucket versus all the other companies that maybe have a much higher stock price relative to their book value, these are what we're calling value companies, those low price stocks versus growth companies that are higher price stocks. Those value companies have more risks. So those risks, we're not going to invest our money there unless we expect to be paid for those risks eventually. 
So if we go back to those big companies like the S&P 500, that $10,000 investment grew to 1.6 million. If we stay with big companies, but we concentrated in value companies, that would have grown to a little over $3 million over that same time period. So it's almost double the growth of the S&P 500, right? So return difference there is about the one and a half to 2%. So you're compensated for that risk eventually. So if you're tracking this, you're going, okay, well, so we got, you know, stocks versus bonds. We've got small versus big companies. We've got value versus growth. What if we put all three of those together? What if we buy small stocks that are also value stocks? And that $10,000 investment would have grown to almost $11 million since 1973. I mean, we're, we're almost, what, nine, 10 times the value of the S&P 500, which is interesting because you're looking at a substantial difference in returns. And yet when I analyze investors' statements, when they say, Jim, this makes sense, can you look at my portfolio? Guess which ingredient's almost always missing? <laughs> that one? <laughs> that one. And it's just like, well, why is that? And People ask me that all the time. Why don't I have this? And you know, sometimes it's because, hey, I, I didn't know this. Like this is the first time I'm hearing this. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Other times it's because of something called familiarity bias, mm. and that is that people tend to invest in what they are familiar with, what they understand. Say so they look at brands that they purchase, and you know, the clothes they're wearing, where they shop. They're going, okay, mm -hmm. these are big businesses. I'll, I'll buy that. But a lot of times people focus on what the news reports, and when you watch the financial news and they report how the market did, they're not usually talking about the entire stock market. They're talking about a piece of the stock market. Yeah. Like the Dow Jones Industrial Average. That's just 30 large companies. Or the S&P 500, 500 large companies. They're not talking about the other thousands of companies that make up the total stock market. So what people do is they watch the news and they say, did the thing that I think is the market go up today? And they look at their statement and say, I'm up too. And they're happy. Or if the market, as they see it, is down and they're down, they're not happy, but there's a way to understand and explain that. Where people get frustrated is the thing that they think is the market is up and their statement is not up, or even worse, it's down. And that's when people say, this isn't working, I'm going to sell this, go to that, change firms, change advisors, whatever it is. So a lot of times portfolios are built just simply to skew towards what people understand and what they know not based on what may be sound investment principles. Now, is that because people are comfortable and other advisors, I don't want to say take advantage of that, but other advisors like their clients to be quote unquote comfortable. And so they don't introduce this. Um, I think it's, I think some of it is, is that they just want people to, I don't even think comfort is necessarily it. They want to have an easy way to explain things. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, because again, if you're saying, hey, well, why is my account down? And then you go, well, hey, look, the market's down. It's like, oh, that makes sense, right? A lot of investors, they just don't take the time to, to dive into some of these things. They're not real difficult to understand, but you just have to know where to look. And, yeah, and I just, think that's the problem because that's right. we don't, as the public, I, I didn't know this. I've never heard of this before. And I wouldn't know what questions to ask. That's it. And you have to have a way to kind of piece this together. And yeah. that's where the recipe comes into play. Um, so before we touch on the recipe, let's talk about the fourth factor, which is profitability. Uh, and this is what actually earned Eugene Fama the Nobel Prize, is that um, this guy spent his entire life since the you know early 1960s doing nothing but studying the stock market. Mm -hmm. And they discovered that, and this is funny, when people always laugh when I say this, they discover that high-profit companies tend to have better stock performance than low-profit companies. And everyone's like, well, Jim, that's a no-brainer. I'm like, yeah, but nobody <laughs> discovered that until 2012. So 
what they basically did, and I'm going to drastically water down the research, was they started looking at stocks of all different shapes and sizes, and they started looking at um, company profits. And they said, just to simplify this, let's throw all companies into a basket. And then let's simply eliminate a big chunk of those companies that have the worst profits and see how the portfolio performed when you're skewing towards higher profit companies. And the portfolio returned jumped rather substantially. So if you look at the entire stock market and you sort it based on profitability, you'll see a return spread over long time periods of somewhere around the neighborhood of an extra two to 4%, depends on the time frame that you're looking at. So again, quick summary, factor one, stocks versus bonds. Factor two, small companies versus large. Factor three, value versus growth. And factor four is high profit versus low profit. Those are ingredients that go into a portfolio. They are not silver bullets. I wish it was as simple as, well, just buy small value, high profit companies and you're going to be just fine in, in no time. It's just not the way it works. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand how long does it take to see these return premiums show up in a portfolio? The future has always been uncertain and the future will always be uncertain. So we have to maintain diversification. Diversification is definitely your buddy when it comes to investing. Gotcha. So, but I think it helps to understand how often do you see these return premiums show up? So I'm going to do this rather quickly here, but there was a study that went back to the 1920s and they reconstructed every possible one, five and 10 year market cycle they, they could recreate. So there are 1,135 overlapping one year time periods you could create dating back to 1926. Mm. And 70% of the time, the stock market beat treasury bills. So that's nice, but it still means that 30% of the time the stock market wins. So that's where volatility comes into play. If you held that portfolio over a 10-year time period, you'd find that 86% of the time the stock market beats treasury bills. Hmm. So again, if you're a long-term investor, that's just saying, I'm not saying don't do bonds or don't do treasury bills. It just means that you can lean on stocks to grow the portfolio, but you can lean on bonds to give you a little bit more stability. So if we go to small companies. In a one-year time period, it's 56% of the time that small beats large. So I've seen people that they'll, for the first time, invest in small companies. It's like, oh, he's joking. They wait like 15 minutes and go, this isn't working. It didn't go up as much today. <laughs> right? Yeah. I wish it was that simple. But if you go over a 10-year time period, it's 70% of the time small outperforms large. Okay. Again, still leaves 30% where it, it's not the case. Large mm -hmm. actually beats small. In fact, we just ended a 10-year time period where large beats small. That's why you have to have exposure to both. Yeah. Value companies beat growth 80% of the time in 10 year time periods and high profit companies beat low profit companies 92% of the time in 10 year time periods. So again, it's just saying that there's evidence behind why these ingredients should be used in the portfolio, but that recipe is where you're going to have to piece these together and say, okay, this is the portfolio that's going to do what I, what I need it to do for me. Okay, Jim. So, so here's the thing so far. I like what you're cooking, right? You're in the kitchen, you're whipping up these ingredients and we've got a good recipe going so far. Where do we go from here? All right. So here's how I start to form the recipe. This is going to sound fancy. It's really not. We're going to dust off the old uh, statistics textbook that you may have read in college. You look at an ingredient like the S&P 500, and it's wonderful. It has an average historical rate of return of 10%. But throughout its history, it's never actually provided a 10% return on the nose in any given calendar year. So that just means that it's always either better or worse than 10. Mm -hmm. So standard deviation helps us understand 
well, how far does the return swing from its average? The bigger the number, the bigger the swing. So if you can just visualize a grandfather clock in that pendulum yeah, and just see it, think about how that pendulum swings back and forth. So again, the S&P has a 10% average rate of return, but the standard deviation is 18%. So how do we use this in investing? Hmm. Well, all you do is you take the 10% return and you add the 18% standard deviation. And if you take 10 plus 18, you have 28. That just means that that portfolio could swing as high as 28%. But if you go the other direction, you take your average return and you subtract the standard deviation, well, that could be an 8% loss. This is just the basic bell curve. So that means if you go throughout history, what you'd find is about two thirds of all investing years. When we do the what we call the first deviation, we did the math one time, you'd find that the S&P two thirds of all years tends to fall between a loss of eight and a gain of 28. That is interesting. It's just not useful to an investor yet because that means a third of all years you invest, the returns are either better than 28, which everybody gets excited about, or it's worse than a loss of eight, which is where people get scared. Yeah. So all you have to do is take your ending value, right? We left off at 28% to the upside, just add another 18. And that means your upside is now 46%. We take our 8% loss, subtract another 18%. Your downside is now negative 26%. In the bell curve, that's that second deviation where you can start to get out towards the, uh, the tail of the curve. That means that 95% of all investing years, we expect the S&P to fall between a loss of 26% and a gain of 46%. At still least 5% of the time where it could be better or worse than that. So if you do the math a third time, you would find that you'd have a spread where the losses could be as much as negative 44%, which is where people really get very, very scared at that point. Yeah, okay. Or the gains could be as high as 64%. So again, this isn't like this is right or wrong, good or bad. It's just that this is what the portfolio, if that's how you invest, that's what you have to expect it to do in any given calendar year. So this is why diversification is key, because if we start adding greens to the portfolio, the objective is we're either trying to keep the standard deviation similar, but improve the return. That would be a more efficient portfolio, or we're trying to keep the return similar, but drop that standard deviation to where somebody's more comfortable. So that's really the game that we start to play is when we start to look at the portfolio, it's just having realistic conversations with people and saying, this is your account. I want you to just imagine that this is your portfolio. Here's what we can do to influence that risk and return. But I, I just want people to imagine the worst case scenario happens this year. We're sitting here 12 months from now, and you've hit the extreme end of that curve. And we're seeing one of the worst economies we've ever experienced since they've been tracking this stuff. And your account is down X percent. Are you going to be okay with that? Because if you're not, we want to have that conversation now because we can't predict the future like anybody else can. I, th I think the psychic network hotline went out of business a while ago. Like, I don't think they ago. were actually very good at that. I don't think, I don't think they saw that coming. They did not. Right. <laughs> so, so we just want to start to show people, if you start to add these different ingredients, here's how this portfolio starts to behave. And it's like going to the eye doctor. So here's portfolio one. Can you see yourself in that? Okay, here's portfolio two. Is that better? Mm -hmm. And just start to change those lenses till you say, you know what? That's a portfolio that I can live with. So fortunately, we have software for this because you do not want to calculate this by hand. Seriously. But it's not a real, it's not a real difficult exercise. So again, when we, when we add those ingredients and we say, okay, if we're going to add small companies to the portfolio, how does it change the risk? What's the expected return change? What about when we add value or high profit, et cetera? Anytime a, an ingredient doesn't have some ability to demonstrate that it can either keep the risk the same, 
but improves the return or keep the returns the same and decrease the risk, it doesn't belong in the portfolio. So I'm going to pick on gold for a minute because it's just an easy target. If you watch the the financial media, you tend to see a lot of commercials for gold come up oh, when yeah. markets are really volatile. You know, and it's like, hey, gold's never gone to zero. Well, a lot of things have never gone to zero. And it, just, it plays with people's fears. <laughs> yeah. So gold can be amazing for things like jewelry, but as an investment, it behaves not the way people think. So historically, gold has similar volatility of the stock market, but the historic returns are similar to treasury bills. So what's acceptable to us as an investor? Is it the treasury bill-like return? If that's the case, then take treasury bill-like risk. Or if it's the volatility is acceptable, then go get paid for that volatility. Go get a much higher return. So gold is interesting because if you take all the gold that has ever been mined in the history of the world and you melted it into one big giant cube, it would sit on the infield of any major league baseball stadium. And it would only go up about as high as the lower part of the upper deck. That's all the gold in the world. Really? Pretty crazy when you think about it. Yeah. I, mean, I thought it'd be bigger than that, but that's I would think so it. too. Yeah. <laughs> right. So now if you owned all that gold, great. How do you make money on it? You have to go find somebody else who is going to ask you, well, what'd you pay for that pile of gold? Okay, here, I'll pay you more for it, right? The metal itself doesn't actually produce anything. Mm -hmm. It just sits there, okay? So again, when we look at that, any ingredient, I'm just picking on gold here, but any ingredient in the portfolio that's not giving you that right risk reward characteristic that we're looking for, it's purely speculation. And look, there's a time and a place to speculate. I get that. Casinos are popular for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's just for the serious money in your portfolio, you really need to try to break this down into as much math and science as possible so that you aren't guessing what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. So that's the that's the recipe side of this. The only thing that's left is just the customization. And there's really three ways to implement what we just spoke about. Um, option one is we can build a disciplined portfolio where we expose the portfolio to these ingredients that we spoke about. And we know that these ingredients are, they're going to start to drift on their own throughout the year. The markets, when they're open for business and they go up and they go down. So that disciplined portfolio is maybe you wanted to have 60% of your money in the stock market and you wanted 40% in bonds. Well, if you don't maintain that balance throughout time, it'll automatically drift. So if the stock market has a great run for five to 10 years, your portfolio might be way more aggressive as you're getting older. Or if the market's not doing well, it might be too conservative on its own. So rebalancing that portfolio just means that we're going to bring it back to that 60-40 mix consistently over the years. But what we're not going to do is, is tilt that portfolio based on what market outlook is. And that fits a lot of investors uh, beautifully. The second option is if you don't use a disciplined portfolio, you can do what's called a dynamic portfolio, which means that you have that 60-40 mix in this example, uh, but you give the manager some leeway they can maybe tilt that mix 5% more aggressive in the stock market or maybe 5% less aggressive. So that 60-40 portfolio could be as high as 65% or it could be as low as 55%. So you can give the manager that 5%, I call it wiggle room, 5% wiggle room, 10% wiggle room. That needs to be defined up front. But what you're really paying the manager to do at this point is to do research and to implement their outlook over the next maybe three to 12 months on where they think the economy is going to be. Sometimes they're going to get it right. Sometimes they're going to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. But what you're looking for, is that going to help me stay disciplined as an investor and commit to this portfolio? Because it doesn't really matter if you stick with the dynamic portfolio or you stick with the 
disciplined portfolio, you're going to do just fine over time. But if you're constantly bouncing around, that's where we see investors really have trouble. There's a lot of research in this that that's where their returns really suffer is they're trying to time the market perfectly on their own. It just doesn't really pan out well. Hmm. So for our higher net worth investors, the people who have the minimum for this is usually around $500,000. It works a little bit better when there's at least a million dollars in the household. You can have a completely customized portfolio built from the ground up specifically for you. And it's not just working with our team, but you're also working with a dedicated private portfolio manager who is you know, helping us to manage that account specifically for you. So it's not a one size fits all approach that 10,000 other people have the same portfolio. This one is actually built for you. And it may emphasize more individual stocks, individual bonds. Uh, you might have certain preferences on companies that you like, companies that you don't like. Yeah, you may have certain feelings and beliefs religiously that have to be part of that portfolio. Mm -hmm. You might not like certain companies that are violating environmental issues. So you start to have, instead of like this, again, this one size fits many approach, it's this thing was built specifically for you, almost like a custom suit. Yeah. And that's pretty much it. I mean, that, that's a fairly, I know it's a lot of details. There are a lot of numbers. But it's a fairly intuitive start to looking at your experience with your investments and making sure that they're on the right track. Yeah. Well, I think it was beautifully explained and that the last part of it really sealed the deal because like pepperoni gives me heartburn, investing in big tobacco for me personally, that would give me heartburn. I wouldn't want to make profits off of that. So I love that you put that in there, that it can be completely customized because that's, you know, I think that's what anybody's looking for. Something that's going to fit their needs, their wants and their desires, and maybe match even their values. That's right. Yeah, even things like their tax situation. Yeah. And that's a big deal. You know, yeah. so it's, we live in a, in a world now where technology has allowed customization to number one, just be incredible, but it's accessible to people that in the past, I mean, the stuff just flat out, you couldn't do unless you had hundreds of millions of dollars. Now you yeah. can do it for a much more modest net worth. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Jim, I hope you like this next part. If people are hungry for more. <laughs> that's pretty good, Eric. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I've been working on that for the last five minutes. Anyway, uh, if they're hungry for more, how do they get a hold of you so they can have a deeper conversation with you? It's real easy. I mean, you can just go to our website, like I've said in other episodes, uh, www.mcgovernwealth.com. And there's a, uh, there's a schedule button. There's a uh, contact us button. Or you can just email us directly, info at mcgovernwealth.com. And uh, yeah, just tell us that, hey, we want to talk a little bit about our investments and uh, you know, have you do an analysis and walk us through the investing process and uh, you know, get a second set of eyes on what you're doing. Absolutely. And, uh, that's, that's the easiest way to get started. Fantastic. Jim, thank you so much for your time. This was beautifully done, very well executed, and uh, was really clear. So I'm sure that the audience learned uh, as much, if not more, than I did. I appreciate that, Eric. And uh, hopefully everybody took a lot of great notes here. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again, Jim. And of course, Last thank you goes to you, listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast with Jim McGovern. If you are hungry for more, but you're not ready to make that phone call or send an email off yet, just subscribe to the podcast by clicking the subscribe now button below. This way, when Jim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this actually helps other people find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com.
This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number 0F67329. AR Insurance License Number 7119103. California Insurance License Number 0F67329. Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103. Compliance number 2022-143018 expires September 2024. All historical data is sourced from the Living Balance Sheet Investment Room. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Investing in the bond market is subject to certain risks, including market rate, interest rates, issuer, credit, and inflation risk. Equities may decline in value due to both real and perceived general market, economic, and industry conditions. The S&P 500 index is a market index generally considered representative of the stock market as a whole. The index focuses on the large cap segment of the U.S. equities market. Dow Jones Industrial Average is widely used indicator of the overall condition of the stock market. A price-weighted average of 30 actively traded blue-chip stocks, primarily industrials, but also includes financial, leisure, and other service-oriented firms. Indices are unmanaged, and one cannot invest directly in an index. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Diversification does not guarantee profit or protect against market loss. References made to overlapping time periods is based on monthly rolling differences and annualized returns over the periods listed. Ruling multi-year periods overlap and are not independent.